Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lycos Podcast. I'm Trevor Marcy, and I'm joined here by my good friend and colleague, Matt. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Trevor. So today, we're going to talk about the book of Wolves and Men by Barry Lopez. It was originally published in 1978, and I think it's one of the most complete works about the relationship between an animal species and humans that's, that's ever been written. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about your experience with the book? So I was introduced to the book by you. I started reading it about three years ago. And I took it with me as reading material on a wilderness canoe trip that I did in Ontario. Which for me was kind of special because I was reading the book in a place where wolves still exist in North America. And certainly Eastern North America. It was a treat to read a book about wolves, and then in the same night, listen to Wolves Howl. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that sounds pretty... I was a little bit uh, bummed that I couldn't go on that trip, as I recall. That sounded like a really good time. I, uh, For myself, I, I can't remember when I read this book for the, the first time, but it was one of those books that parts of it would stick with me. You know, like, they would flash into my mind specific quotes from the book at, at the most random at the most random times. So it was just one of those books that's always kind of been in the back of my mind. But even so, I still forgot how influential this book was. Rereading it for this podcast was, uh, yeah, it was um, brought it all back, I would say. To pick up the book in the last couple of weeks and read through sections again was like shaking hands with an old friend. I couldn't have said it better myself. It, uh, it was... I'd forgotten it how much parts of it had affected me the first time around and that the, the just the, the reaction I would have on an emotional level, but also kind of physical reaction to it. Just oh, yeah. smiling at times and then just, oh, the, my furrowed brow. <laughs> Talking about shaking hands with an old friend, it's, it, it uh, reminds me of the definition of nostalgia from the, from the original Greek, which is the, it's an, it's an old wound that will not heal. And, you know, there's something bittersweet about it. And that's exactly what it felt like reading this book. Because there are parts of it that filled my soul right up. And then parts of it that just wrung that soul right back out. It make you uh, regret your place in humanity. At times, yeah. Um, so, talking about uh, the like those quotes that stick with you. There are a couple. I've included them here. Um, and I'll talk about them later. But there's one that, especially ever since I got Wyatt my dog that's really stuck with me and that I think about from time to time. And it's right from the introduction, but he says that the Bellacoola Indians believe that someone once tried to change all the animals into men, but succeeded in making human only the eyes of the wolf. And I think anybody that's ever had a dog at least understands intimately what that means. Your dog, Sarkis, for example. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, for, for those of you who've never seen Sarkis, he is a, gigantic white animal beast that looks like a polar bear allegedly as a dog his eyes are uncannily human yeah and when he puts his large bear-like head next to yours and looks at you you can't help but think that you're looking into the eyes of an intelligent creature that understands completely what you're thinking and feeling in that moment and uh there was a, a paper published in the journal Science a couple years ago, 2015, that talked about uh, how humans and dogs have 
had a convergent evolution towards actually using this the same or similar facial expressions. And that when you look at your dog and your dog looks at you, because you can recognize each other's face and the emotions that it's displaying, both you and the dog actually release oxytocin, um, which helps to kind of further that, that bond. Now, they also demonstrated that this is not the same for people that, that raise wolves or wolf-dog hybrids. And I think it's important to highlight here at the outset the difference between a dog and a wolf. They are not the same creature, but they do share a similar lineage, a similar ancestry. And I think the effect that a dog can have is very similar and maybe even amplified or magnified in terms of the effect that a wolf can have on, on the human imagination. Because it's a wild animal, and it will always be a wild animal. And towards the end of this book, Barry Lopez talks about that, his experience raising wolves. Anyhow, I, let's, uh, let's just jump right into it. So he starts off talking about the wolf kind of as a, as a scientific creature and, and our biological understanding. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, I didn't realize that the average adult wolf only weighs about 80 pounds. You know, why it's 65 uh, and I consider him to be a, a medium-sized dog. I think I'd always conceived of wolves as, as being larger animals. Part of that is they're all legs and they're <laughs> <Yeah>. all fur. <laughs> legs that go all the way north to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he he highlights something that I think is important to, to discuss. Let me just quote him here. Let's say there are 8,000 wolves in Alaska, multiplying by 365 that's about 3 million wolf days of activity a year. Researchers may see something like 75 different wolves over a period of 25 or 30 hours. That's about 90 wolf days. Observed behavior amounts to about 3 one-thousandths of 1% of wolf behavior. And off this, you know, that's, that's what we've constructed our understanding of the wolf on. There's a lot that goes unseen. Wolves be walking around on two legs. Chilling. Chit-chatting about of humans and wolves. <laughs> uh, I would I would love to see who published that one. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure they've got a... I'll bet they start with the beginning of the book where the end of this book goes. <laughs> Spoiler alert, folks, by the way. So talking about their, their territorial range, wolves roamed most of the northern hemisphere above 30 degrees north latitude. They were found throughout Europe the Balkans, and the Near and Middle East south into Arabia. They were found in Afghanistan and northern India, throughout Russia north into Siberia, south again as far as China, and east into the islands of Japan. In North America, the wolf reached a southern limit just north of Mexico City and ranged north as far as Cape Morris, Jessup, Greenland, which is less than 400 miles from the North Pole. Now, this was written in 1978, and he gives... The, the kind of modern day at that time statistics for what the, the wolf population in the world looks like now. And I have, have updated that to kind of see, you know, because we've had the Endangered Species Act and a couple different things. So keeping in mind that almost global expanse of the wolf, here's where we're at now. We've only got about 300,000 wolves worldwide. In North America alone, historically, biologists have estimated that the standing wolf population at any given time was about 400,000. So worldwide, we now have less wolves than would have been in North America, you know, at any given day 
kind of prior to the human uh, expansion in the 17th, 18th century. Currently, the U.S. as a whole has a wolf population of about 18,000, and two-thirds of those are located in Alaska. Um, by comparison, Canada, our neighbor to the north, has a wolf population of about 60,000. And I think the, the reason for that disparity will, will become clear uh, kind of as we, as we move forward. To get back to what you were talking about in terms of their uh, geographic proliferance, it's hard to think about another creature besides maybe certain birds, humans certainly, that are found in every single biodome of the world. Yeah. That they are found in the truly the Arctic on tundra and in the desert. They are found in the woods. They are found in the mountains. They are found in the prairies. Wolves can live anywhere. And there is some, there is some change between uh, how wolves evolve and are kind of physically built based on those places. Um, and Lopez talks about the kind of the different genus of wolf. But the reality is that he breaks it down a lot of times to the timber wolf, those that are found in the in the woods in the forest, and he breaks it down to a tundra wolf, ones that are found really on snow, and they're the same creature. They're really just you know it's that kind of eastern gray wolf versus the Alaskan wolf, which are really the same wolf in a lot of ways, just based on where they're found, and they. They can survive and thrive in a huge variation in climate. And it's kind of incredible. The Talking about the, the variations, we might think about uh, bears, for example. You know, black bear, grizzly bear, brown bear. But for us, it's really no stretch of the imagination to just call them all bears. Sure. And I think we could consider wolves the same way. But as you're saying about wolves, the adaptability of wolves have allowed them to range much farther than, than bears ever have. In, and really prosper in all of those different environments, not unlike humans. I mean, they talk about uh, wolves being in truly the jungles of India. Yeah. And then living completely on snow, you know, in the Arctic. Yeah. And, and of course, there are the, the biological adaptations that, that occur that allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. But evolutionarily speaking, it's like a step away. If and, it, that. and it's not a... These are not two different canids at that point. Right. It's not like we're talking about uh, African wild hunting dogs or dingoes. These are still wolves. Yeah. And and highlighting, again, the, the complicated relationship that, that we have uh, as a species with wolves. You know, just talking about how reduced the numbers are. On March 12th, uh, 2012, a gray wolf in Newfoundland was mistaken for a coyote and killed. It was the first time a gray wolf had been seen in Newfoundland since the 1930s. And it was shot and killed. Yeah. So there was a really big coyote that got shot. I forget if it was in northern Vermont or New Hampshire in the last five years, which when they collected the animal, they were like, a really big coyote. It was a gray wolf. Yeah. yeah. And it had come down from Quebec and was probably traveling alone. But just in terms of the the distance that a wolf can can cross, you know, not hugely surprising that one had 
kind of trickled down from Canada. And it's probably one of the things that contributed their wide range in the first place is that they do go so far. Their, their territories are massive and, and ever-changing and, and quite dynamic. So talking a little bit about the, the anatomy or the equipment of the wolf, especially in, in the Arctic uh, territories, uh, let me quote Lopez here. The wolf's coat is remarkable, a luxurious fur consisting of two layers, a soft, light-colored, dense underfur that lies beneath a covering of long guard hairs which shed moisture and keep the underfur dry. The coat is thick across the shoulders, where guard hairs may be four or five inches long, and thins out between the muzzle and legs. By placing muzzle and unprotected nose between the rear legs and overlapping the face with a thickly furred tail, Wolves can turn their backs to the wind and sleep comfortably in the open at 40 below zero Fahrenheit. Pound for pound, a wolf's fur provides better insulation than a dog's fur, and it won't collect ice when warm breath condenses against it. Talks about how when a wolf is has its full winter fur, when it has grown the thickest fur of the season, that it's actually difficult to stick your finger through the guard hair and through that underfur and touch skin, it is so thick you cannot touch skin through it. I, I almost uh, think of it like a layer of like boiled wool felt, yeah. almost kind of wrap. And and the I think about the things that we try to do to insulate ourselves against the the winter weather. Um, you know, you got the wool layer, and then you got your soft shell, your hard shell, your insulating mid layer, and and these guys just grow it. The, the system and, itself works so well. And it creates a microclimate in terms of, they, they say it won't collect ice when warm breath condenses against it. That outer, the most outer layer is truly the jacket. It's what's keeping the the wind and rain and snow back. Right. And it stays a uh, temperature that's closer to an outside temperature. And it's that inner layer that stays closer to the animal's temperature. So that something that touches it, doesn't hit it and freeze and melt. It just collects or comes off. Yeah. And thinking about that negative 40 degrees, I think the coldest weather that I've been exposed to has been about negative 30. And and obviously I was well bundled up at that point. And, and it's difficult to tolerate being out there for long periods of time. You know, and when I say long, I mean like 30 minutes. But a wolf can just curl up with its back to the wind and sleep comfortably. And suffer no damage or injury. No, not not get frostbite. Yeah. Does, doesn't need to put on another jacket. Doesn't need to find protection. May for comfort to get out of the wind. But in reality, can just lie down in the snow and be comfortable. And and so talking about the frostbite, this is one of the things that I found fascinating. The Their foot pads won't freeze. And this was, they figured this out back in the 1970s. Uh, there was a study done um, with, with some wolves where they figured out that for an adult wolf, what happens is the, at the very surface of the foot pad, when it's exposed to below freezing temperatures, the foot pad itself, that surface stays at a constant 1.5 degrees Celsius. So right above freezing temperature. And while they had this, this data, they didn't know why this was really. Until uh, a couple of years ago, they did uh, an electron scanning microscope survey of some some uh, foot pads. And what they found is that, so the foot pad itself is mostly fat tissue. And then running through the foot pad are these uh, four arteries that are basically columns. They, 
you know, most arteries branch off. These ones don't branch. They just go right down to the surface of the foot pad, right below the dermis in the, in the subcutaneous layer. And there they form this nexus with the, the veins down there. Um, and what that allows is this immediate um, rewarming of all of that blood that's coming into contact with the cold surface from the arteries. It's immediately made back and it self-regulates at that 1.5 degree Celsius temperature. And that's, that's independent of the wolf's core body temperature. It, it's its own system that functions to keep the tissues right above the freezing temperature. And if you think about the way that humans respond to cold, you know, we have a different system altogether where we want to try to keep our vital organs uh, supplied with warmth and blood. So we vasoconstrict at the extremities. But then that results in this positive feedback loop where our extremities get colder. And so we experience more vasoconstriction. And then because we don't have the warm blood anymore, that's how we freeze. And that's how we get chill blains and frostbite and, you know, amputations. Blood is shunted away from our extremities when we're cold in order to, just as you said, preserve our core, our internal organs, to preserve organ function at cold temperatures. And that is at the loss of function, the use, the uh, sometimes in keeping your extremities, because as your fingers shut down, they, they certainly aren't built the same way as a wolf's, and they may just freeze completely. Yeah. What, uh, what was it you, you said the other day? Um, that the that the surgeon told you about oh we with uh, with frostbite you freeze them in January and cut them off in June the uh, the freezing injury in human skin as it rewarms often you have this so one the cells are lysed because they're frozen so they break apart and then you have this inflammatory response so it often looks almost like a second degree burn. You yeah. get these uh, large blisters, and then you get huge swelling of the extremity. So the hands, your feet, which is often where you see these you know, freezing or near-freezing injuries, uh, frost nip or frostbite, get hugely swollen. And then uh, sometimes the parts that are truly frozen, that the cells have broken, have been injured, they don't debride them or clean them out or cut that off immediately. They wait months because sometimes those cells come back mm -hmm. and sometimes they don't. And when they don't, they'll often turn black and necrotic. The cell tissue dies. Uh, it almost starts to rot in place. And then months later, you cut them off and you hopefully retain your opposable thumbs. Bottom line, wolves don't have that problem. No, bottom, bottom line, <laughs> wolves are just fine. Yeah, they're just fine. It's interesting that that, that, so there are many ways that animals keep their extremities warm. Birds, things like ducks, they have the ability to stand on ice. Their feet don't get cold. Mm -hmm. um, and they use a countercurrent heat exchange. That yep. The blood vessels flow uh, directly next to each other mm -hmm. so that the blood that's going down is warming the blood coming back. So that the blood that was at the extremity, as it comes back into the core, doesn't cause a drop in core temperatures. And my understanding is that the, the wolf's uh, system works similarly, but it it's more, or it's very efficient because the that layer of, of uh, veins and arteries is only at the surface. Well, and it's almost like the capillaries and venules, the smallest functional unit exactly. of the blood vessel, are the same thing in a wolf. 
yeah. at their at the pads of their feet. It's like uh, that mixing of blood, that fistula, if you will, of blood mm-hmm. allows for them to... I'd love to see how it works on a cellular level, but the exchange of blood there allows for well, that to maintain a constant temperature. And just one one brief aside about about the paw. You know, I, I, I was impressed at the size of the paw. Print. They're massive. Uh, Lopez has a picture in the in the book, uh, or more like a sketching, of the actual size of a of a wolf's paw, and I was I was taking it back, and I put my hand over top of it, and it, it was it was very similar. It was eerily similar in size, and so you know that may contribute to thinking that wolves are a little bit bigger than they are. They've got massive paws, long legs, and then you know a body that weighs a, a good sixty or seventy pounds is not insignificant. You've got meatier paws than I do, but but for us with regular sized human hands, the the wolf paws that I've seen in uh, in sand or in mud are they are terrifyingly large. <laughs> they, <laughs> you would think that they belonged to an animal of a larger body than uh, its footprint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they are, it, but. It makes sense in terms of the fact that these guys have built-in snowshoes. They can pad along, and so they float, but also they they move quietly because they have big, soft feet. Big, soft feet that are positioned at the correct angle. He, I think he made a mention at one point, or, or I read somewhere, but talking about how our feet are held at that 90 degree at the bottom. Almost inevitable that as we move through the woods, we're going to, trip over things or catch a root or disturb. But with the shape of the wolf's paw, its leg going into its foot, it's almost like a like a dagger at an angle going in and out of that soft ground. So it can move silently through the woods, which obviously would have its advantages. So, so continuing on, talking a little bit more about our biological understanding and their adaptability and, and toughness, Lopez says that um, in examination of 110 wolves, killed along the Tanana River in Alaska, showed that prior to their deaths, 56 had survived one or more traumatic injuries, including fractured skulls, broken ribs, broken legs, etc. One four-year-old male was labeled as having been in fair to good condition and showed healed fractures in the front left leg, two ribs on the right side, and the skull. It's a remarkably durable animal. That, that's badass. That is, yeah. that is badass. Without casts, without anything. Just healed themselves right up. Got back out after it. Getting after it. <laughs> also, it shows... I mean, those are all... To fracture a skull... So the, these are all big bones. These are large mechanisms of injury. Yeah. So you don't you don't trip and fall as a wolf and break a leg. Yeah. You don't uh, have a couple too many cocktails, slide down the stairs and crack your head. And crack your skull as a wolf. No, you piss off a moose. A you large get, male moose. You are trying to bring down some gigantic un- ungulate. And you get kicked in the head. You get thrown. You get bucked off. Uh, this is not something that happens just in a, you know, a, a play fight with another wolf. These animals leave incredibly physically difficult lives. Rugged, rugged lives, and and they survive, and they, when survive, they thrive. Thrive, truly. 
let's talk a little bit about some misconceptions uh, or one specifically. I think we as a culture understand this idea of the alpha wolf or, you know, usually specifically the alpha male wolf. But I think it's important to talk about what a wolf pack structure looks like for real in the wild. Um, and Lu- Lopez clues us into this. He, he says that in a pack, there's, there's an alpha female and an alpha male. And it is interestingly, usually the alpha female that makes a lot of the, the big decisions uh, for the pack. Uh, she's the one that chooses where they're going to den. And so that puts them in a stationary spot for about five to six weeks. And that's five to six weeks of hunting. So you need to pick the right spot where the caribou are going to be, where the other animals that they're hunting are going to be. Making a wrong decision could be disastrous. And the fact that it's the alpha female that gets to choose that, um, I think, is is important. It's also the alpha female in a pack. She's the only one that, that whelps the pups. She's the only one that, that gives birth. Um, and interestingly, it may not be the alpha male that, that sires them. Uh, usually is, but not, but not always. And he also makes a brief mention that the young females, uh, given their, their body composition, are slightly faster than the young males. So in some cases, in those younger years, they may actually be the better hunters and be relied on more for, for gathering food. You see the, the strongest manifestations of, of the pack hierarchy and the rank structure uh, during the breeding season, uh, feeding times, when they're traveling, and when they're doing territorial maintenance activities. That's when, that's when the pack structure is the most important. And, and when they play, interestingly, we'll talk about them playing in a second. When they play, um, sometimes these roles are completely reversed. The, the most beta animal becomes the alpha, you know, the, they're just messing around. They're having a good time. Um, and and these, this rank structure can be completely upset. So, so again, this idea of the lone wolf or the alpha wolf, or we have, we really do project ourselves onto these animals time and time again, ignoring the, the essential facts. And I think by doing so, preventing us from a better and deeper understanding of, of the animal. I think it would be easy to anthropomorphize and label an alpha wolf as a male role in a kingly position where he is an elevated leader who kind of leads down across mm-hmm. his his manor, his pack. And it is I mean, that it just doesn't fit reality in terms of pack structure. And, and honestly, it doesn't fit reality in terms of primate pack structure either um most of the so you will see very strong rigid hierarchies in in primates and chimpanzees and bonobos well bonobos less so but really the job of the alpha and i think this is something that that gets confused a lot the job of the alpha is to prevent conflict it's not the animal that's going around beating its chest all the time it maintains the integrity of the pack for the benefit of the pack and because that Evolutionary speaking, in terms of continuing its own bloodline, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, keep things mellow, but also make sure that you are living in a good place, that you have food close by, that your lady's taken care of. And That would be ladies, plural, by the way. Talking about primates. Oh, I thought we were still chatting about wolves. Yeah, a little bit of back and forth. That too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... So talking about um, wolves as, as social animals, and, and I think this is where we also see a lot of crossover with humans, talking about 
their their playing behavior. You know, we we understand and often conceptualize their play as the the, the predecessor of hunting behavior. You know, so a young wolf pup will be rough and tumble with a, a larger wolf and it'll learn how to attack the back of the neck or, you know, claw at this particular area. But for wolves, it, it goes it almost more superficial and more, more deeply than that. It's not just the hunting behavior. It, it, there's something about the inherent nature of the wolf that is a little bit playful, much like human beings. Let, let me uh, just read from Lopez here. I recall how one Alaska evening, the sun still bright at 11.30 p.m., we watched three wolves slip over the flanks of a hill in the Brooks Range like rafts dipping over riffles on a river. Sunlight shattered on a melt pond ahead of them. Spotting some pintail ducks there, the wolves quickly flattened out in the blueberries and heather. They squirmed slowly toward the water. At a distance of 50 feet, they popped in the air like corks and charged the ducks. The pintails exploded skyward in a brilliant confusion of pounding wings, bounding wolves, and sheets of sunburst water. Breast feathers from their chest hung almost motionless in midair. They got away. The wolves cavorted in the pond, lapped some water, and were gone. It was all a game. Like primates, they spend a good part of their time with their young and playing with each other. I once saw a wolf on the tundra winging a piece of caribou hide around like a frisbee for an hour by himself. And that, that last part of some that's one of those ones that has stuck with me. That mental image. And I remember when I read it, that was deeply impactful. Uh, I've watched videos of them playing with feathers <laughs> where they, they'll pick one up and throw it in the air and it just kind of floats back down and they'll snap at it in the air and then carry it a distance and then throw it up in the air again. And that's that's play. Yeah. That, that can't be described as doing that for anything besides just the, the inherent joy uh, because they find amusement in it. <laughs> and maybe, again, we're taking our own feelings and traits and applying that to the wolf here, but that I can't think of um, an aspect that would benefit them besides just the pure enjoyment. I, I know that we talk about being cautious about anthropomorphizing our, our animals, but the fact is we are social creatures. Wolves are social creatures. And it makes sense that there's some overlap. It makes sense that emotionally we process the world in similar ways. We are carnivores. We are predators. Uh, we exist in a, in a pack structure with some different types of hierarchy. It would make a lot of sense for us to be able to share these same experiences. Sometimes we do things just, I mean, how, can you stand on the edge of a beach and not throw a rock in the water? Is it possible? <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think it's possible. I, I mean, we've been on a couple beaches I don't think we've ever not thrown a rock in the water. And we just do it because it's fun. Because it amuses us. And, and I think we would be neglecting some of that common ground if we were to say that we can't anthropomorphize. It's not anthropomorphizing. It's recognizing the common threads between us, even though we're different species. And talking about that, the wolf also has a very interesting relationship with the raven. And the raven itself is a fascinating animal and one that I think you and I are going to discuss uh, in the future. But it's, it's talking about these different relationships between animals, 
I'm going to read uh, from from a Wolves and Men here, but he's actually quoting uh, from David Mech's book, which is just titled The Wolf. David Mech is a very important uh, person in the wolf research field. And he, ta- he talks a little bit about some interactions that he saw between the wolf and the raven. The birds would dive at a wolf's head or tail, and the wolf would duck and then leap at them. Sometimes the ravens chased the wolves, flying just above their heads, and once a raven waddled to a resting wolf, pecked at its tail, and jumped aside as the wolf snapped at it. When the wolf retaliated by stalking the raven, the bird allowed it within a foot before arising. Then it landed a few feet beyond the wolf and repeated the prank. It appears that the wolf and the raven have reached an adjustment in their relationships, such that each creature is rewarded in some way by the presence of the other, and that each is fully aware of the other's capabilities. Both species are extremely social, so they must possess the psychological mechanisms necessary for forming social attachments. Perhaps in some way, individuals of each species have included members of the other in their social group and have formed bonds with them. I think it's interesting where two incredibly intelligent social species have bridged that gap between and not it's not as if it were two mammals this is a bird yeah. and a mammal and you could often think of a wolf as being the higher order predator here ravens are predators scavengers but the fact that they have found this mutually beneficial relationship where their high level of intelligence their social interaction allows them to play together. Yeah. We're, I think that's so cool. <laughs> it's, and, and maybe it's easier to, to talk about that relationship in terms of the wolf and the raven as opposed to maybe, you know, the wolf and the human. But but it seems so plainly evident that, yeah, absolutely, they can form these social attachments, and they do. And, and just a little bit more about ravens, because this is some information that, that I didn't know. But... Uh, Some studies have shown ravens to be as intelligent in logical puzzle solving as chimpanzees and dolphins, uh, which, if you just let that marinate for a second, is pretty incredible. Yeah, they're like black parrots of the north. Yeah, and so talking about that, they they can actually imitate human speech, and in some cases in captivity, can learn to mimic human speech better than parrots. And not just human speech, they can also imitate wolf howls. And they will imitate the call of a wolf to alert them to a dead animal that isn't that hasn't been uh, eaten yet, because the the raven can't get to the you know, intestines or the organs inside. So they'll they'll imitate a wolf howl, call a wolf or a pack of wolves to that that dead animal, and then once the wolves are done tearing into it, the raven now has its its choice of what it wants. That is amazing to me. That is so cool. I, I think that's fascinating. And again, kind of that, that mutually beneficial relationship, um, they help each other out. And one other thing about the ravens, they, they, they use gestures to communicate with each other, um, which could be analogous to human hand signals. Like they, for example, use their beak to point at things in, in the same way that we would use our fingers. And uh, they are the only animal besides primates that have been known to do this. So that was kind of the... You know, we, we got a little bit, I guess, more into the subjective side of things. But Lopez deals with the the wolf in, in a couple distinct phases. The first one is the, um, the scientific observations about the wolf. Um, the second one that we're going to discuss now 
he he uses the observations and stories of Native Americans to act as the foil to the observations of the wildlife biologists. And and by doing so, he reveals the, the fundamental difference, I think, in the approach of each. For one, the wolf is a is a being with its own personality. Uh, each wolf is a little different, and and they have a sort of fatalistic understanding that we can never know everything that there is to know about the wolf. Uh, biologists, on the other hand, are attempting to construct this platonic ideal to, to gather as much data as possible to assemble the the notional wolf, you know, kind of the, the abstract idea of this is a wolf with a, with a capital W. I, I think it's, it's especially important to recognize the, the similarities between a nomadic hunter-gatherer society lifestyle and, and that of a wolf pack. Um, and that's not just a metaphorical consideration. They, they both eat the same foods. They require very similar hunting and social strategies. And the, the similar environment exerts similar evolutionary influences on both. I think you could argue that the same behavioral background for nomadic humans and pack structure canids like wolves in terms of how they would move along, say, a prairie or a grassland, follow herds of grazing animals, uh, that similar structure, that similar pathway is probably what led to the domestication of wild dogs. Yeah. Uh, they... You know, there's that kind of the the two view of how uh, dogs became domesticated. The either the the pup that was raised from from you know almost from birth and then raised in a domesticated sense, or of the packs of wild dogs that were on lived on the fringe of a native nomadic society, and then slowly were incorporated as they became more comfortable on that over years. The same reason that they followed the the same pathways and the same herds, the same food, the same travel with the seasons, is that kind of closeness is probably some of the things why we grew together and domesticated. And he points out at some point the, the, the difference between uh, wolves and dogs, because it would have been the Native Americans to kind of first domesticate the, those wild animals on the fringe. At least in North about. America. In sure. North America, yeah. And uh, he uh, he talks about one incident where uh, a, a wolf came into a town and, and killed a, a dog or something like that. And he was talking with one of the the indigenous uh, people afterwards, and you know, positing all these different biological reasons. And I think the uh, the guy who was talking to said, "No." Oh, Maybe. Wolves just hate dogs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's like they it's like they see the they've lost respect for them as a creature. Yeah, exactly. Because they have domesticated themselves. Right, they right. Have, that, they allow themselves to live that close to humans. And and I just want to point out that, that we are glossing over a lot of what's in this book. Uh the the book itself, I think, deserves a spot on, on any bookshelf. But but we can't get into everything that this book has to offer because of the, the time constraints that we have. But there are little asides, little anecdotes, little bits of information throughout the entire book um, that, that on just in and of themselves are, are very interesting. The As you start to describe here the observations of the, uh, the Native American, the kind of first people experience with wolves in their natural environment... Uh, he describes walking along a trail 
with, I'm not sure if it was Alaskan Inuit or Canadian First People, and they pause at one point, and his guide says something like, there's a wolf over that hill. How did you know? And it's one of those, the, the landscape was willing to tell him if he would just know how to look and listen. Mm. And it was he had seen a bird. And the bird had wolf hair. And that wolf hair was from the soft underbelly of a female wolf. And she would have only uh, lost that hair or pulled it out if she was making a den. And so mm-hmm. it, just from seeing this bird, yeah. hearing hearing it first and then seeing it, he could tell that there was a denned female wolf and a pack right there. And he uh, he understood that as looking at it through the eyes of a wildlife biologist, that he was he was blind to so much because he did not know how to look. Yeah. And that these native people that had grown up alongside this creature, this animal, they saw it because of the way that they could see into the landscape, see the different parts, see their connection to each other, and then sh- they could see what it was trying to show them. It reminds me of a, a story I read once about, uh, I think it was an anthropologist who was in the uh, Amazon, and he was with some of the, the tribes there. And he said, similarly, um, they could see things that he couldn't see. But, but even more than that, they could distinguish individual jaguars by the scent of their urine. <laughs> uh, I've, I know I've told you this story before. I worked with this guy, Charlie, once. We were helping out at a, a kid's day camp doing like a wilderness day. And we did some basic map and compass work and you know, showing kids from the city how to start fires. And we were at this piece of private property in northern Massachusetts. And it was kind of pastoral landscape. There's a big field and a farm fence. We're up on this small wooded hill kind of looking out over this landscape, waiting for the next round of kids to show up. And Charlie, who is in a wheelchair because he had had a, a spinal injury in his 20s, we're sitting there and he says to me, a cat is going to jump up on that fence. The, the grass is high. So it's, like, it's midsummer. It hadn't been mowed. The, the fence itself was almost lost in grass. And I look down to Charlie to say something and a cat jumps on the fence. This is at a distance of 100 plus yards. Like, you couldn't have seen the cat. I said, Charlie, how, how did you know? I said, a bird told me. And I, and I kind of laughed it off. I said, Come on, really? And he said, Matt, the whole world is trying to tell you what's going on. You just don't know how to listen to understand. And I felt crushed <laughs> because I felt like I was missing so much. And he had he had learned that from, from a, a Native American teacher that he'd had, who had basically shown him, and truly, it sounds foolish, but enlightened him on how to listen. And how to observe. And he had this amazing observational power. There's this whole story in, in kind of Zen Buddhism where uh, this emperor asked the Zen master to distill the essence of, of his teachings. And he thought for a second, took out some rice paper, and <clears throat> wrote the characters for 
attention, attention, attention. And that's what you, if you, if you could just pay attention to the world around you, you could realize how much is actually happening. And, and I, I feel overwhelmed at times by how much I don't know, by how much I don't see, by how much I don't hear. And, you know, when, when you and I go for, for walks in the wood, um, sometimes we'll, we'll chat, but it makes me think about the other thing that Barry Lopez said, where when Native Americans would go into the, into the forest um, hunting, they would say nothing. They left their problems at the edge of the forest. Biologists, on the other hand, from his perspective, bring their problems with them and talk the entire time that they're going into the field to set up for a survey or whatever it is that they're doing. There's an almost awkward void that we feel like we need to fill with talk. And at times we do walk along and it'll be 30 minutes where we won't have said a word. And those, to a certain degree, there's just as much of a, a bond, a shared connection, and truly an experience that we've shared that goes beyond us kind of chit-chatting about what's going on yeah. in life. And those are also the times, I mean, truly, those are the times when the world reveals itself to us. It's a it's a quieter and a, and a gentler kind of bond, but but I think more important. And also, at, I think it's one that comes from... From comfort. Oftentimes we fill those spaces because we are uncomfortable in our own silence and certainly uncomfortable in sharing silence with someone else where there is a certain level of of friendship that or relationship that you have to kind of attain to be comfortable with someone and not speak. And and so maybe the, the key is to go out into the world and then not speak. And realizing that that it's not silent, that the world is speaking to you in a very real way all around you right then. And if you just listen to the conversation, you can develop that same sort of relationship. And you can share an experience without sharing your words. So the the, the Native Americans, the wildlife biologists, they they kind of approach their observations of of the wolf in, in different ways. But... You know, the, the wildlife biologists, they tend to hold this view that, that wolves kill the weak, the old, and the injured. And, and in response, Lopez writes, Too simple, the Nunamute say. The Nunamute are one of the uh, indigenous uh, folks that live up in, in Alaska. Temperature and humidity affect the wolf's and caribou's endurance. Terrain affects their ability to run. For caribou and moose, the nearness of deep, open water is important. With no water to get into, even the healthiest caribou may fall prey to the wolf, because no caribou can outlast a wolf. There are other things it is quite impossible to know, say the Nunamute. But maybe the reason for some long chases is that some wolves like the taste of meat that's been run hard. Maybe, suggests one Nunamute, healthy caribou are killed at times, because when the wolves drive the caribou in an ambush, the healthy caribou get there first. And this, this kind of brings me back to the how much of Wolf Day activity do we actually observe. We just miss because we're not there right. to see it. And these, these peoples that have a uh, strong oral tradition and, and culture surrounding their relationship with this animal may, in fact, have, have quite valid observations to, to offer if, if we just were to, to listen a little bit. I, I think that this, this next passage here 
really does a great job of, of talking about not only the relationship between the the Native Americans and, and the wolf, um, but also just just human beings and the wolf. An old Nunamute man was asked who, at the end of his life, knew more about the mountains and foothills of the Brooks Range near Anaktavuk, an old man or a wolf. This is his response. Amaguk, which is the word for the wolf, is like the Nunamute. He doesn't hunt when the weather is bad. He likes to play. He works hard to get food for his family. His hair starts to get white when he is old. Young wolves, just like Nunamute, run around in shallow melt ponds, scaring the ducks. And Amaguk is tough, living in 50 below zero, through blizzards, for months without caribou, like Nunamute, maybe tougher. And Amaguk is smart. He sets up ambushes for caribou. He sleeps high up on the ridges when there are humans around. He brings his pups to a kill, but won't let them stay there alone. Grizzly bears. Young wolves do a lot of foolish things. Get killed. Amoguk and Nunamute like caribou meat. Know the good places for caribou hunting. Where ground squirrels are good. Where to get raspberries. A good place for getting away from mosquitoes. Where lupine blooms first in May. Where that big rock is that looks like Aklak, the grizzly bear where the creeks are still running in August. After a pause, the old man looks up and says, the same. They know the same. <laughs> I don't know what you say to that. Uh, I don't think you say anything. I think you just let it simmer. So he goes on to talk a little bit um, about the, the relationship between the, the hunter and the hunted. Obviously, speaking with the Native American tribes, um, they were they were hunters, um, and they saw some kinship with the wolf in this respect too. So uh, here he's going to reference the uh, Naskapi uh, Indian tribe, which is actually up in the Quebec region of of Canada, so just north of us here in Vermont. Uh, he says the agreement between hunter and hunted is mythic in origin, made with an owner of the animals in the Naskapi world. This is the animal master of the caribou, because the caribou is the mainstay of the Naskapi diet. The animal master is a single animal in a great mythic herd. He is both timeless and indestructible, and the archetype of the species. It is he who gives the hunter the animal to be killed, and who has the power to keep the animals away from the hunter if he is unworthy. And you know who else had that same concept? My man, Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> For those of you that may not recall, Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber. Um, he wrote some things. He wrote some things. Um, Ted Kaczynski was a mathematical genius. Uh, he went to college very young. To, I think it was Harvard or, or some other place um, like that for mathematics. Yeah, too smart for his own good. Yeah. But the thing about Ted Kaczynski was that when he was living in his uh, cabin in Montana, he he would see rabbits and he kind of came up with this idea that maybe there was really only one rabbit, one kind of grandfather rabbit, if you will. And all of the other rabbits were manifestations of that one rabbit. It, it, it's interesting to me that he came up with this idea that has been demonstrated across different Native American cultures. Perhaps there's just something about living in the woods with animals that that encourages the human mind to think that way. 
one of the one of the most important pieces uh, for me uh, was uh, when he talks about the the conversation of death between uh, again the the hunter and the hunted or predator and prey. Um, I remember I had a conversation uh, with a girlfriend of mine uh, once about hunting elk, uh, and I was explaining how how incredible I found the elk and and how beautiful the bugle of a male elk in the morning is how much I respected the animal. And she was just absolutely unable to understand how I could say that I respected something so much and still want to kill it. And I I found it difficult to explain because for me, the idea of a respect, even even a kind of love, is not divorced from the act of killing. Uh, And the feeling of of gratitude that comes from that sort of hunt is, is pretty overwhelming. When, when it happens. I think when there is a relationship between a hunter and quarry, prey, hunted, that is that, that relationship, that gratitude, that's how you, at, at the greatest level, that's how you show respect for that animal's life and then the use of it. Part of that is the experience, the ability to be in the wilderness to be in at this point truly that animal's environment to share that experience with it uh, to see it in that natural environment to appreciate that and then to take its life i think that is difficult to explain to some people why would you want to take the, the the highest level to elevate that experience ended in this creature's death part of that is that relationship because there is something within that animal that goes beyond just that experience. And part of that is the, the meat, the sustenance, the nutrition that comes from that wild meat. And Lopez talks about that directly in, in this section. He says, I call this exchange in which the animals appear to lock eyes and make a decision, the conversation of death. It is a ceremonial exchange, the flesh of the hunted in exchange for the respect for its spirit. In this way, both animals, not the predator alone, choose for the encounter to end in death. There is at least a sacred order in this. There is nobility, and it is something that happens only between the wolf and his major prey species. It produces, for the wolf, sacred meat. But what about domestic stock? We have intentionally bred these animals to be docile and accepting, he says, what happens when a wolf wanders into a flock of sheep and kills 20 or 30 of them in apparent compulsion is perhaps not so much a slaughter as a failure on the part of the sheep to communicate anything at all. Resistance, mutual respect, appropriateness to the wolf. The wolf has initiated a sacred ritual and met with ignorance. And I don't know that we have any sort of real scientific evidence for for what he's talking about here but observationally there there may be something to to what he's saying um in a different part of the book he mentions the buffalo hunters that would get they would stand in the middle of a herd and they would shoot animals and the herd wouldn't react Um, one one would fall dead there'd be you know the explosion of gunfire one would fall dead and the rest of the herd would just sit there it, it goes against that the reaction we think we should be seeing. And, and he said that the hunters would get mesmerized almost. They would just keep shooting 
uh, until their their gun barrels overheated and they they just lost track of themselves and, and maybe it's because that that reaction didn't occur and to a certain degree that relationship was missing yeah I, absolutely I think it's also interesting to note there uh, earlier when he's talking about physiology and behavior talks about how it's easy to think that wolves only hunt the weak the young and we've discussed how that's not necessarily true. They often go for, maybe they chase a caribou longer because they enjoy it. Maybe they are able to bring down a faster caribou because it goes into a an ambush fastest or soonest. In this case, when he talks about sheep or domesticated animals, I think it's easy to think that wolves would only kill as much as they needed to eat. Mm-hmm. But I think wolves fall into that, that same category where sometimes they... They kill the excess. Yeah. And we don't necessarily know why. Is there a reason why? Do we need that reason why? The wolf doesn't seem to. No, no. But we may need the reason for humans. We certainly kill the excess um, sometimes, uh, whether it be in combat or in other situations. You know, historically you hear about things like the the bloodlust, right? Or uh, the berserker Vikings, which were on all sorts of drugs, but... Again, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's this physiological feedback loop about the the hunting and the, the, the hunter and the hunted and what the prey animal is supposed to do or what the predator is supposed to do. And when something happens there, when that feedback loop gets interrupted, either the hunt ends or, or you know, you get this excess killing. Who, who knows? You're, you're absolutely right. Hard to say. And as a, as a continuation of this, as a lesson, I think, well, well, for me, at least. He says, consider the Indian again. Native American cultures in general stress that there was nothing wrong with dying. One should only strive to die well. That is, consciously choose to die, even if it is inevitable. The greatest glory accrued to a warrior who acted with this kind of self-control in the very teeth of death. The ability to see death as less than tragic was rooted in a different perception of ego. A person was simultaneously indispensable and dispensable in an appropriate way in the world. In the conversation of death is the striving for a death that is appropriate. I have lived a full life, says the prey. I am ready to die. I am willing to die, because clearly I will be dying so that the others in this small herd will go on living. I am ready to die, because my leg is broken, or my lungs are impacted, and my time is finished. I, I remember when I was working in, in the emergency department, you, know, you, you tend to see a lot of death. And it caused me certainly to reflect a little bit on, on my own mortality. And, and I realized that, that as I've gotten older, I think I have a much greater respect for, for death than I did when I was when I was young. And I find myself searching for the instruction on how to die well. And this passage talks about that. It, it spoke to that need in me in a very deep way to have a death, not even of, of significance, but to choose to die and to choose to die well. The, I, the same line there is the one that kind of touches me the most where you are consciously choosing to die 
even in the face of inevitability where you know you will die there is nothing you can do about it but you choose to accept it and you choose to pass and i think that gives you a certain that acceptance gives you a certain power over death where it gives you the ability to to a certain degree die on your own terms i think so many people go to death and uh, so i work in an emergency department and i see people pass on a weekly basis and I have seen terrible, catastrophic death. And I have seen people approach death with something that can only be called grace, where they are allowing themselves to pass. They are making that decision. They are choosing to die, even though it's in the face of it being inevitable. That They don't really have a choice. And, and that makes it, I think, easier to palate for themselves, Oftentimes it makes it easier to accept, to digest for their family. I think about that, that poem, do not go gently into that dark night. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, but, but at the same time, I think a good caveat to that would be to say, if I am to die, then I wish to die well. Yeah. And, uh, was it George Washington? I think said when he was giving up his, his presidency, he said, we will teach them how to say goodbye. Yeah. So, so to continue a little bit with, with this idea of hunting and the similarities between wolf hunters and, and human hunters, Lopez says, it does not require two men any more than it requires two wolves to kill one caribou, but the Nascope are social hunters anyway. The social fabric of the Saskope tribe is the result of the acknowledgement of dependence on each other for food. The young, the old, the sick, they cannot hunt. The social system of the Nascope bestows prestige on the successful hunter. That is what is exchanged for meat. The individual ego is therefore both nurtured and submerged. A man's skills are praised, his food is eaten, his pride reinforced. I, I don't know. I like being able to provide for people. That that certainly gives me a, a real feeling of meaning, even cooking a meal or something like that. There's something about that, sharing in that food. Continuing on here with the similarities, says, Highly intriguing is the fact that white-tailed deer in Minnesota sought security from Indian hunters by moving into the border area between warring tribes, where hunters were least likely to show up. And the fact that deer do the same with respect to wolves seek security along the border zones between wolf territories where wolves spend the least time hunting. That's an amazing interpretation of behavior for the deer upon wolves. I would, I'd love to know where the genesis of that was in terms of their understanding mm-hmm. of, do they just know that if they go to that place, they are less likely to be hunted? Or do they understand that there is a wolf range that these two packs kind of overlay into this Venn diagram. Right. And that if they are in that space in between, that they are, uh, that they are more safe. And and what signals would they use to communicate? Or or what do they read from the environment that tells them that? I would have to think that they understand that more as a space, an environment that's safe. Mm -hmm. They have found that they are hunted less than they have an understanding of each individual pack and then kind of overlaying that the delineation and saying, oh, in between, we're good to go. Yeah. 
maybe it's even something as simple as talking about those Venn diagrams. Well, all the deer that were in the circles of the Venn diagrams got killed. Yeah. So the only thing that's left over by, by exclusion of the deer that for whatever reason preferred that little section in the middle. So to kind of wrap up talking about, well, honestly, both Native Americans and the wolf. Lopez shares many stories about the interactions between Native Americans and wolves um, of the respect and admiration they held for the animal, how they understood the similarities between themselves intimately. But perhaps the only truly relevant story, the, the one that, that needs to be told from the book about this, is, is the following. One morning in Montana, I sat in the home of an old man named Raven Bear, a crow. He had made a trip to Seattle a few years before to see his family. One day, he took his grandson and drove to the Olympic Peninsula, where he had heard there was a commercial zoo with a number of wolves. He found the place, paid $6, and went in. In a while, he was ashamed he had brought his grandson there. The wolves were all in small pens, obese animals suffering from disease, he thought. The people running the zoo told him the wolves were the last remnants of the great plains wolf, Canis lupus nubilis. I wanted to tell the man he didn't know what he was saying, said Raven Bear. But I didn't know how to do that. I just took the boy and left. It was late at night. Raven Bear was sitting on top of a bunk bed with his stocking feet hanging over the edge. After a while, he said, It hurts like hell, you know, to see it finished. And that's actually how Lopez closes out that chapter. And I, I think that he's referencing not only the end of the era of the wolf, but also the, the Native American. Not to go all bury my heart at Wounded Knee or anything, but th- there is something about that that history that we as a, as a nation, I think, have to reconcile. That there is a part of ourselves that, that we lost. Or, or maybe that's just over now. And, and I think that Raven Bear in this story. I, w- I wonder if he just didn't feel all of that at one time. I certainly think that he understands that those wolves in that zoo are not the last remnants of the Great Plains wolf. That they that wolf died years before. That those are just fat, sick creatures in a cage. I, uh, when I was a kid, I used to love going to zoos. Um, I don't go to zoos anymore. The next section of the book is called The Beast of Waste and Desolation. This was a hard part of the book to read. The second half of this book is there are times when I felt nauseated. Yeah. Uh, and the it's so easy to read that title and think wolf when you read this section and what you what you think is man and it's just painful (laughs) and i think it's important to i do want to give lopez full credit here because i think he actually does a, a good job of he has obviously as we do an immense respect for for the animal but I think he does a really good job of trying to portray that awkward relationship that we've had with killing wolves in, in a somewhat balanced light. In, for something that, frankly, 
is a very unbalanced history. He does a really good job of explaining the the complexities behind it. And we're going to try to highlight some of those parts. But but it's not just a punitive self-flagellation sort of sort of thing. So he doesn't try to justify it in any way, but I think he explains the kind of the behaviors, the history, the societal, you know, infrastructure that created this relationship yeah. that was just so destructive to a wolf population. He he gives us reasons, not excuses. Truly. So he starts by saying, Ever since man first began to wonder about wolves, to make dogs of their descendants, to admire them as hunters, he has made a regular business of killing them. At first glance, the reasons are simple enough and, and justifiable. Wolves are predators. When men come into a land to, quote-unquote, tame it, they replace the wild game with domestic animals. The wolves prey on these creatures, the men kill them in turn, and reduce the wolf population generally as a preventative measure to secure their economic investment. The two just can't live side by side. And, you know, we also kill other types of predators that potentially prey on livestock, mountain lions, bears, etc., if, if need be. But there's a difference, and he highlights this. He says, but the wolf is fundamentally different because the history of killing wolves shows far less restraint and far more perversity. A lot of people didn't just kill wolves, they tortured them. They set wolves on fire and tore their jaws out and cut their Achilles tendons and turned dogs loose on them. They poisoned them with strychnine, arsenic, and cyanide on such a scale that millions of other animals, raccoons, black-footed ferrets, red foxes, ravens, red-tailed hawks, eagles, ground squirrels, wolverines, were killed incidentally in the process. And, and this is not just by settlers in the 1700s or, or cattlemen in the late 19th century. He talks about in Minnesota in the 1970s, people choked eastern timber wolves to death in snares to show their contempt for the animal's designation as an endangered species. And then he, he kind of gets into, so, so why might this be? And I think one of the most interesting points that he, that he makes is this uh, phrase that he coins, which is theriophobia, uh, which, which means fear of the beast. And if you think about, at least in North America, kind of the, the contextual history of the expansion West and coming and settling and civilizing from, from their perspective, this continent manifest destiny manifest destiny the wolf symbolized everything that they were trying to conquer it the was, wilderness it was the wild yeah it was the non-domesticatable <laughs> truly that they they could not tame it and so they killed it more than that we we also heaped onto this dark creature that we didn't understand that we feared all of our own viciousness we implanted into it all of the things that were unique human cruelty and by doing so we made the wolf this manifestation of evil and so we were you know fighting the righteous battle we were we were conquering the the evil untamed wild animals for for the sake of prosperity and for the good of mankind but because of this on a deeper level you know, the, the beast that we're talking about is is really a concept. And 
we made the the wolf the sin eater of all of our violent impulses. And with almost anything that we, we try to destroy in the name of righteousness, we lose our righteous virtues in the process. In, in a more recent example, uh, and, and again, this is from the book, on a Saturday afternoon in Texas a few years ago, three men on horseback rode down a female red wolf and threw a lasso over her neck. When she gripped the rope with her teeth to keep the noose from closing, they dragged her around the prairie until they'd broken her teeth out. Then while two of them stretched the animal between their horses with ropes, the third man beat her to death with a pair of fence pliers. The wolf was taken around to a few bars in a pickup and finally thrown in a roadside ditch. And it's it's real easy. It's real easy to say, well, that's just three, three bad men. But to do that, I think, denies us the violence that is inherent to, to humanity. It's very unlikely that three sociopaths happen to be friends working in the same place and happen to find this wolf all at the same time. The, the actual incidence of sociopathy in the, human, in the U.S. population is very low. It could be that we, you know, if we didn't know about this, we wouldn't know these guys from, from anybody else. I think it's inherent to our culture that they see no value or worth in that animal, that it is something to just be destroyed, and that in doing so, there's there's nothing wrong with killing it in any way. Uh, but it's, and then it's afterwards, not... showing, you know, dragging it to a couple of bars, hey, look what we killed. But it's not just the killing. I mean, they could have killed it in any way they wanted. But there was a contempt in the killing. And you see this a lot, especially, you know, in places like uh, Rwanda or if you think back to the Holocaust. There's, you know, you can't dehumanize a wolf because it's already not a human. But there, there's something about the you are like us, but you're not one of us. And you're a threat. And that unleashes i think all of that violent potential the the truly cruel potential i mean they didn't have to strain it between two two horses and beat it to death with a pair of fence pliers they they could have chosen a much quicker way to dispatch it if it was just about killing it and being rid of the nuisance and then taking some some pride and satisfaction in death to the point where they showed it off yeah we have to be very careful because it's so very easy to to say that's not me or that's not us Anybody that, that believes that, I encourage them to read a book called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, which is a, a story about a uh, police battalion uh, in World War II in, in Europe. Poland. Yeah, thank you. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but you should probably just read that book. It, it talks a lot about what ordinary people are capable of doing. Before we start talking about the actual the, the numbers... There's a single line in the text that I, I, I think is worth mentioning because I read it and then I, I stopped and I went back and I read it again and then again to, to try to let the full impact of it sink in. He writes that biological historians think the fauna of the Great Plains at this time, i.e. the mid to late 1800s, was as rich as it had ever been anywhere in the world. You think about that for a second. This is a treeless prairie, and it has more life on it, or as much life on it, as any other place in the world in history. Ever. 
just just to drive that point home. I, I think it's easy to think about biodiversity and biomass and think of the tropical rainforest mm-hmm. and think that from the understory and humus through the upper reaches of the trees that there is more life than anywhere in the world. And the reality is that we're describing a an American savanna hmm. that is full of herd creatures, birds, predators, and everything in between. And by the way, this was only about 150 years ago. Yeah, this is within four generations, maybe five. <laughs> Shit comes at you fast. <laughs> so, so now let's let's talk about the numbers here. No one knows how many animals were killed on the plains from, say, 1850 to 1900. If you count the buffalo for hides and the antelope for backstraps and the passenger pigeons for target practice and the Indian ponies by whites to keep the Indian poor, it is conceivable that 500 million creatures died, perhaps 1 million wolves, 2 million. The numbers no longer have meaning. Yeah, one one death, that's a travesty. A million, that's just a number. That was Stalin. <laughs> one death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. We can't conceive of what 500 million deaths looks like. Um, and sure, you know, you're talking about maybe some smaller animals with, with the pigeons and whatnot, but, but still, just a biomass. million wolves, two million wolves in a 50-year period. He, he uses Montana as an example of, of kind of the progression or the institutionalization, I guess you could say, of wolf killing in, in this country. The first wolf bounty law passed in Montana in 1884. It offered $1 for a dead wolf, which, which is about 200 bucks in today's currency. That first year, 5,540 wolves were turned in for a bounty. And then the next year was something like 2,000. I think the year after that was also 2,000. So, so it, it kind of leveled out. But then there was a downturn in the cattle grazing economy. Naturally, wolves were blamed. So in 1899, the bounty was raised to $5 a wolf. This led to a big jump in wolf killings. Uh, but then that, that declined steadily over the next four years until the bounty was reduced to $3 in 1903. And you would think at this point, things have kind of leveled out. We've, we've done the bounty thing. Okay. Let's, let's kind of move on to the next iteration. But that's, that's not what happened. By 1905, wolf predation in Montana was light, but a small cadre of bitter stockmen not only got the bounty back up to $10, but had passed an outrageous law requiring the state veterinarian to inoculate wolves with scarcoptic mange and then turn them loose. Cattlemen were to get $15 from the legislature for every wolf they trapped for the program. In spite of the ethical outrage, in spite of the fact it didn't work, in spite of the fact that a similar disease spread to domestic stock and the federal government forbade human consumption of cattle from some counties, the program was continued for 11 years. As your tax dollars at work right there. It's easy to dismiss that as it just doesn't make sense, but it's... It shows how much hatred, how much transference that people can have for their misfortune, their poor management, and then take that and put it onto an animal and then come up with 
ways to just that border on perversion. Or anything. You know, anything will do. <laughs> as long as it's not as long as it's not my fault. So the consequence of that was that from 1883 to 1918, uh, under the system, 80,730 wolves were bountied for a total of $342,764. At least we, we keep our Lopez here describes the average officer. When he wasn't tending to traps, the government hunter was looking for dens. The pups were dug out and strangled in the spring. Although the knack for finding dens was much praised, the killing of pups made most men sick. I have done it many times and since, wrote one, but I have never had to do anything that goes against the grain more than to kill pups at this stage. Potential murderers they may be, but at this time, they are just plump, friendly little things that nuzzle you and whine little pleased whines. We both felt somewhat ashamed and guilty, he said, speaking for his partner. But it was duty. It's it's amazing to me the, the number of things that that we can do for the sake of duty when we do what we think we are supposed to do. Robert E. Lee was quoted as saying that duty is the most sublime word in the human language. One can never do more, and one should never wish to do less. But I think you got to be careful about who sets the standards of, of what your duty is. And and talking to the, the human element of this, yeah, this one was a hard one to read. Um, you could not blame these men, at least I could not, for what they had done, as though it had all happened in a vacuum. The aerial hunter, this is somebody that had been talking to before, the aerial hunter, trapping on the ground one year, caught a large male black wolf in one of his traps. As he approached, the wolf lifted his trapped foot, extended it toward him, and whined softly. I would have let him go if I didn't need the money awful bad, he said quietly. One of the more poignant stories and and bear with me because it's just a little bit uh longer of a of a passage but i didn't feel i could leave any of this out concerns the the Kurumpaw wolf of northern new mexico and his mate blanca who were killed in 1894 by the naturalist ernest thompson seaton seaton called in by a concerned rancher who was a friend tried every sort of set he could devise to no avail Every time he set one, the Kurumpaw wolf would dig up and spring the traps or pointedly ignore them. So one evening, Seton set out to concoct the be-all, end-all of baits. Acting on the hint of an old trapper, this is Seton talking, I melted some cheese together with the kidney fat of a freshly killed heifer, stewing it in a china dish and cutting it with a bone knife to avoid the taint of metal. When the mixture was cool, I cut it into lumps and making a hole in the side of each lump, I inserted a large dose of strychnine and cyanide contained in a capsule that was impermeable to any odor. Finally, I sealed the holes with pieces of the cheese itself. During the whole process, I wore a pair of gloves steeped in the hot blood of the heifer and even avoided breathing over the baits. When all was ready, I put them in a rawhide bag rubbed all over with blood 
and rode forth, dragging the liver and kidneys of the beef at the end of a rope. With this, I made a ten-mile circuit, dropping a bait at each quarter mile, and taking the utmost care, always, not to touch any with my hands. The Kermpaw Wolf, for his part, carefully gathered four of the baits in a pile and defecated on them. But the female wolf, Blanca, was finally caught in a steel trap in the spring of 1894. Seton and a companion approached the wolf on horseback. And Seton wrote, Then followed the inevitable tragedy, the idea of which I shrank from afterward more than at the time. We each threw a lasso over the neck of the doomed wolf and strained our horses in opposite directions until the blood burst from her mouth, her eyes glazed, her limbs stiffened, and then fell limp. The dead female was taken back to the ranch. The male, abandoning all his former caution, followed her, and the next day stepped into a nest of traps set around the ranch buildings. He was chained up and left for the night, but was found dead in the morning, without a wound or any sign of struggle. Seton, who had been moved by what had happened, placed his dead body in the shed next to Blanca's. I think I find it interesting that uh, he's described in the text as a naturalist. Seton mm. is. And I think it is... You know, this is a time, turn of the 20th century, where a true observational naturalist is probably hard to come by and that oftentimes people that were that knew the most about a subject were people that spent a lot of time outside for their work oftentimes in a in a role or in a job uh like that and obviously the person to catch and kill a wolf would be someone that that knew it that understood it Hmm. would be a naturalist uh that that's i think a kind of a painful dichotomy to understand where the person who knows an animal the best is the one that has to eradicate it. It immediately makes me think of the the government officers that, that were doing the the wolf hunting, the the ones that were strangling the pups. Yeah, you know they had to be adept at finding them. They had, they had to know the wolf, and with, with that knowledge, you know, comes that intimacy. And then at the end of it, your job is to strangle puppies. Yeah, that that must have a burden, and and, and I think that Lopez reminds us in reading this. You you certainly feel that there's almost yeah. always a sense of regret. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly felt it. <laughs> you know, I, I did. It was like I said. It was hard. It was both hard to read and hard to not imagine myself in that same situation. Oh, and, and hard to uh, feel their emotions. Yeah. Because I think he captures them so well in that he doesn't, he, to his credit, he does not portray these people as bloodthirsty murderers for the most part. He explains that oftentimes they had a job, they felt like they were doing some service, and that to their credit to their humanity, they often uh, were pained by the job that they were providing. Again, read Ordinary Men. Ugh, or don't. <laughs> so to to wrap up here, I think this passage th- there's more to this book. Uh, he talks a lot about in the in the next section. He goes into the the mythology of wolves and, and talks about the mythological stories like the the Vikings and, and Ragnarok 
and Fenris de- devouring the the moon um, or the sun, uh, one of the two. And I think we focused on kind of the North American experience that wolves truly do live in every biome of the world, and there are you know, historical perspectives, asides, stories that go all across Europe, across Asia. The European experience with wolves is not much different from our own. Maybe a little bit earlier in terms of the kind of uh, Western experience that at, just because Europe was cultivated mm-hmm. prior to North America, um, but wolves were pushed out of most of Europe besides mountainous regions that you just didn't have people in just hundreds of years before they were in the U.S. And a lot of times before these government programs were could exist. Yeah. But the... I think what we've discussed mostly is that experience in kind of our own backyard in North America. Partially because it's it's salient to us, but the book covers all of that. Barry Lopez does a very thorough job. And so again, I highly recommend that you get the book. And it's funny because he does mention at one point he was talking uh, to, to a European. It was either a biologist or a naturalist or a hunter or something like that. And he said that the, the European told him, you know, in Europe, we had wolves. And we hated them, but we didn't do anything like you did in North America. There is something unique about the relationship, I think, that, that we have had with, with wolves kind of in the U.S. As a, as a culture. The other piece that we don't get into here is the interesting idea of, and he goes into it for a number of pages, of children raised by wolves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the enfant sauvage. Uh, in the idea of, and I, I mean that goes all the way back to, you know, we can talk about the founding of Rome. You know, the, Romulus the, and Remus. Romulus and Remus, the statue that it's actually much smaller than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's rather disappointing. The, <laughs> it's the size of a small dog, <laughs> not of <laughs> not of this large creature, and the these two infant children kind of suckling mm-hmm. at her breast. But the idea of that there is this kind of romantic lore of wolves have the ability, partially because of that social structure, partially because of they, they do have that nurturing, almost kinship with with people that there are these kind of historical references to children that were mm-hmm. raised by wolves, the savage children, if you will. And he brings some kind of fact into that in mm-hmm. terms of, what uh, would describe that behavior that may have been seen. And there's some links that are drawn between, I was actually impressed with, given that this was written in the 70s, similarities may be seen in you know, low-functioning autism spectrum and how that might be reflected in kind of a savage or wolf-like behavior. And then also the, the manifestation of uh, lysanthropy, which is this kind of depression and despair believing that that you are in fact a a wolf which is a a rare but but documented uh medical condition probably less so now uh because wolves have essentially faded from our collective cultural mind somewhat but that that idea of a a nurturing wolf is actually thank you for that the perfect springboard into this final passage (laughs) so he says it may be reasonable to expect most people to dismiss the notion of a nurturing wolf 
as a naive person's referent, but that doesn't seem wise to me. When, from the prisons of our cities, we look out to wilderness, when we reach intellectually for such abstractions as the privilege of leading a life free from nonsensical conventions, or one without guilt or subterfuge, in short, a life of integrity, I think we can turn to wolves. We do sense in them courage, stamina, and a straightforwardness of living. We do sense that they are somehow correct in the universe. And we are somehow still at odds with it. So, thank you, everybody, for joining us in in our discussion. I'd like to end today just by asking for your feedback. If you you like the podcast, please uh, subscribe and or uh, give us a review on iTunes. If you don't like the podcast, please, especially you, let us know how we can improve. Um, We're very passionate about the topics that we cover and we want to share them in an effective way. So any feedback you have, please let us know. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, there are a couple different ways that you can do it. First, if you'd like to get the books that we talked about uh, for yourself, and this one of Wolves and Men is especially worth reading cover to cover. Like I said, there is so much in here that we didn't get a chance to go over. You can access the Lycos reading list through the Lycos Designs website, which is www.lycosdesigns.com. That's L-Y-K-O-S. We'll post links to the books on Amazon, and going through us to get your books is a great way to support the podcast. Now, I do want to say one thing. We don't do the podcast to market Lycos Designs clothing. We started it to explore topics related to human nature and animals and humans in nature and to build up a community of folks who are interested in in the same fields. So if you want to know more about what we do as a company uh, and the kind of gear that we make, please feel free to check out the website and see what's there. But we're not really going to go into it on the podcast much, um, if at all. And furthering that idea of community, you can connect with us on Instagram at Lycos Designs, Facebook, uh, or just the Lycos Designs website. I personally read all of the feedback that gets sent in. So if you have something you'd like to add to the conversation, know that it will be heard. And that's a wrap, motherfucker. It's still on. <laughs> <laughs> uh.